When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to Signals to Danger. This is episode 9 of season 1. In what's almost becoming my mantra, thanks to everyone for listening, sharing and liking. Please continue, it is lovely to have you here. I want to give a special thanks to our new patrons, Adam and Dave. Happy to have you on board. If you'd like to come along and support the podcast financially as well, get yourself onto patreon.com forward slash signals to danger. I've also started dabbling in some general railway themed merchandise, including my attempt at a Christmas jumper. If that interests you, Get yourself over to the shop page at signalstodanger.com or follow the links on our social media. Not to sweeten the deal, but there is 15% off everything there for the next few days. I will have to admit at this point that I've been cursed with quite the sore throat and blocked nose this week still. So I've put off recording as late as I can, but considering it's now 25 to 9 on Sunday the 6th in the evening and the episode's due out in about three hours' time. I probably can't leave any later, so this is the uh, the vocal quality that you're going to be getting this week, I'm afraid. No REIB releases to discuss this week, so it's a nice short intro. Let's get straight into today's episode. A flurry of snow blew through the bitter December air. A shroud of darkness hung over the cutting as the wind whistled through. Splintered timber and twisted metal lay there, a whole carriage sitting atop the pile. Men were chilled to the bone as they set about the business of rescuing the trapped and the injured. The year, 1937, and the place, Castle Carry. People are known to have died. Carriages are crushed one on top of another. One lies metres away and appears partially burned. The railway industry is tonight coming to terms with yet another disaster. 
This is Signals to Danger, a podcast where we look at major rail disasters which have occurred in the UK, explain what happened, how the investigation was carried out, and how each of these accidents shaped the industry going forwards. I'm Dan. I work within the UK rail industry in my day-to-day life, but today I'll be the one taking you through this podcast. We'll start this episode, as we do everyone, by talking about what's going on in the world right now. The year this accident took place was 1937. On the 12th of May, King George VI had his coronation, taking up the mantle vacated by his brother as abdication. 1st of July brings with it the introduction of the 999 emergency telephone number in the UK. For any US or European listeners, this is our 911 or 112 service. December brought us a stable of many childhoods, including my own, the Dandy comic book, featuring characters such as Desperate Dan, which I'm sure you can imagine held quite a place in my heart growing up. In terms of the railway and what the landscape looked like at this time, this is actually the first episode we've done where we're talking about a railway before the nationalised British Railways era. This era is known as the Big Four. It's a period of time which was dominated by four major railway companies, surprisingly enough. The Southern Railway, Great Western Railway, London, Midland and Scottish, and of particular importance to this episode, the London and North Eastern Railway. The date we're discussing in this episode is the 10th of December, so if you're listening in the first couple of days since we've released, we're more or less discussing this on the 83rd anniversary of the accident. The village of Castle Carry can be found in North Lanarkshire, Scotland. Around halfway between Edinburgh and Glasgow, but slightly to the north, this tiny settlement had always been a place where humans established their treasured infrastructure projects. It shares its land with no less than a bridged river, a Roman fort, roads, a nationwide canal, a Victorian railway viaduct and a modern motorway. If we build it to get around, we seem to have built it there at some point in the history. The town also played host to a railway station, although this closed in 1967. At the time of our story, however, it was very much still in use. The two-platform station sat across the tracks with a footbridge to cross. Just to the east were junctions, one to the loading banks at the station, and another to the north to allow access to the fire clay works directly adjacent. After this, the twin tracks ran off towards the viaduct, east to Falkirk. Where the main line entered the station and the sidings turned off, you could also find the signal box, helpfully named Castle Carry Signal Box. This is where we'll start our story this time. Signalman Andrew Snedden was in the hot seat on the 10th of December, or more likely the somewhat warm standing position. His post at the Castle Carry box gave him, usually, a commanding view of the station and the viaduct in all their glory. However, on this date, the flurries of snow and the fading afternoon light meant that his visibility was limited. Nearly nine feet above rail height, Signaler Snedden had a bank of windows with which to view his patch. Eighteen levers lay along the floor in front of him to allow him to control the area he was responsible for, and on the shelf above them were a number of instruments that would allow him to communicate with the next box up and down the line. To the east, this was Upper Greenhill, towards Edinburgh, and Dulleter East to the west, towards Glasgow. Down at the station, W. Scott, the station master, was going about his duties as required, keeping Castle Carry ticking over nicely, while also ensuring visibility was an acceptable level. 
taking the occasional walk along to the brickworks, checking signals on the station and making sure all was in order as it was meant to be. All in all, Castle Carry was nothing more than a normal, quiet station, muffled by the snow as day turned into evening. At 2pm that afternoon, another group of people had been hard at work. The crew of the 2pm Dundee to Glasgow Express, hauled by the steam locomotive Dandy Dinmont. The train consisted of seven eight-wheeled passenger carriages and a six-wheeled fish van to the rear. Passengers and crew made their way from platforms onto the train, and when the clocks ticked to 2pm, the loco, worth just shy of 100 tonnes, dutifully drew the train out of the coastal town and onwards towards Glasgow. The Dundee Express, as we'll now call it, wasn't alone this afternoon in their journey to Glasgow. Just about two hours later, at 4pm, a second express train was preparing to depart. Headed up by the Super Pacific Class A3 Grand Parade, the train consisted of nine eight-wheeled coaches. While this whole train weighed in the order of 470 tonnes, over 150 of them were the engine alone. A powerful mainline locomotive, part of the same family as the very recognisable Flying Scotsman. Grand Parade was more than capable of this task. And at three minutes past four, steam filled the pistons and it too started its journey to the city of Glasgow to the west. Grand Parade was leaving Edinburgh. So we'll call this the Edinburgh Express for the rest of the episode. Along this busy line between Edinburgh and Glasgow, there was much traffic, but things didn't always run smoothly especially when Scottish snow starts a-falling. The infrastructure of the railway in the 1930s was far more mechanical than it is now. Signals aren't lights with electrical wires, they're pieces of wood which are physically moved by pulleys and levers and cables. Points aren't an electrical motor remotely controlled, they're two mechanical creations, and this added some difficulty when snow and ice started to set in. On the 10th of December, one such failure had occurred. Several miles and a few signal boxes to the east of Castle Carry was Gartshaw. A set of points here had become clogged with snow. Not a great deal, but enough to prevent the bolt from passing through the stretcher bar and securing them in place. Half an hour's delay ensued while the issue was resolved, and this prevented mainline traffic from proceeding westbound. One thing which is all too common, even nowadays, is the phenomenon of stacking up. One service is delayed slightly, but one, two, three services following it all pick up delay minutes as the dominoes work back along the line. A delays B, B delays C, etc, etc. In fact, if you get delays in the worst places, you can suddenly find that a 10-minute track circuit failure ends up having hundreds of actual delay minutes pinned to it. There's whole departments at Network Rail and in operating companies. They spend their entire day job passing delays around the system. It's called delay attribution, and it is a fascinating process, which I have no inclination to really get involved in my day-to-day, because it's an incredibly complicated process as well. Stacking up occurred on the 10th, as you can expect on such a busy line. While the issue at Gartshaw was resolved, a Polmont to Glasgow passenger service was forced to wait at Croy, which was the next station to the east. This in turn blocked the line at Croy, so there was a freight train that was detained at Dilator East the one between Croy and Castlecarry. So all of this meant that the lines out of Castlecarry were blocked. Stacking up of services meant that the next train to arrive here would need to wait until the points were unblocked. The passenger train left Croy, and the freight train left Dulleter East. 
Knowing all of this, when Snedden was offered a train from Greenhill Junction, he knew he could accept it, but not offer it forward yet. His home signal remained at danger, and his distant at caution. We're talking about absolute block signalling here, so if you want a bit of a detailed explanation on that, you can find that in the Irk Valley Junction episode of this podcast. The short version, and all you need to know for this point, is that each signaller controls a distant signal for each direction, and at least one stop signal or a home. Stop signals can only show stop or go, danger or clear, and distance can only show clear or caution. If the distant is on or at caution, it means that the home is at danger and the train should be prepared to stop there. At 4.22, in the fading light, where signalman Snedden accepted the Dundee to Glasgow Express, he did so in the knowledge that his home signal would stop the train before the platform, and that his distance signal would warn the driver this would happen. Which was why Snedden was filled with horror at the point when the Dundee train came into view. The engine was steaming, under power, and showing no sign of stopping. He ran to the opening window at one end of the box, blew his railway whistle, and displayed a red lamp as a warning. As the train passed, the driver, A.D. McCauley, made no sign to acknowledge the signal. He didn't sound his whistle, he didn't wave. Snedden assumed that it passed his section and the signals at danger. As such, he immediately telegraphed his counterpart at Dullator East to warn him of what he expected, an impending collision between the Dundee Express and the freight train waiting at Dullator East box. Immediately after he sent this bell code, he telephoned down to the booking office clerk to ask for the station master, Scott, to come up to the box. He then telephoned Signaler Beatty at the Greenhill Junction box to discuss what happened and whether or not he could accept any further trains. Snedden confirmed he had sent the appropriate signals down the line and that his home signal was at danger, with a quarter mile clear beyond it. It was decided that the regulations allowed him to accept the next train as far as Castle Carry. At 16.32, he accepted the next train, the 16.03 from Edinburgh, headed up by the powerful Grand Parade. What Snedden didn't know at this point was that driver Macaulay, at the controls of the Dundee, had seen his signal and had made a rapid brake application. His train passed the home signal but came to a halt just beyond it, outside of the station but within the area known as station limits controlled by Snedden's signal box. The taillight of the train was visible from the platforms, just under 300 yards from the box. Indeed, Station Master Scott saw the light from it as he walked back from the brickworks. The driver knew that he'd missed a signal at this point, so he sent his fireman, Fleming, back to the box to speak to the signaller. Fireman Fleming reached the box shortly after 4.35pm. The station master Scott immediately followed Fleming into the box. At this time, Snedden realised with an expression of relief, according to Fleming, that the Dundee train had stopped. Fleming's account, however, indicated that Snedden, then speaking on the box to the signalman at Dulliter East was still under the wrong impression about where his train had stopped, and Fleming had to correct him. Scott looked from the windows of the signal box and faintly saw the tail lamp 294 yards away. As all three men stood there in the box, Snedden made a remark along the lines of, 
I'll have to see about getting that four o'clock stopped. Feynman's Fleming's response to this was to say it's about time there were some detonators on the track. Detonators are small explosives placed on the track to warn trains of a danger ahead. As the wheels of the train run over them, the pressure causes them to explode, giving a loud, undeniable signal to the driver to stop. Just at that point, a bell sounded. The signaller at Greenhill had just sent the train entering section signal to Snedden. The Edinburgh train was on its way. Snedden ran for the debts. He quickly left the box, followed by Fleming and Scott. But only three were placed. At around 60 mile an hour, the Edinburgh Express steamed through the horn signal just outside the box and before the station. The driver, seeing Snedden's red lamp being held towards him and hearing one detonator explode, knew that something was wrong. He closed the regulator, opened the sanders, and then, as he started to reach the end of the platform, he saw the tail lamp of the Dundee train ahead of him. He shouted to his fireman, Hold on. Once everything had stopped moving, it was clear that the wreckage was substantial and that something terrible had taken place. The engine of the Dundee Express and its five leading carriages had been pushed forwards around 50 yards, but they had gotten off lightly compared to the remainder of the train. The sixth and seventh carriages were destroyed, almost beyond recognition, along with the fish van. The force of the 150-ton steam loco leading the Edinburgh train had almost disintegrated them into matchsticks. The report probably described the sheer destruction far better than I could ever write. These vehicles acted as a cushion, and their bodies were simply obliterated. One end of the underframe of the 7th was turned completely around so that the two ends were adjacent to one another, and it was carried forward in front of the engine. The underframe of the 6th, found alongside and to the right of the engine, was not quite so distorted, but many feet at the rear end had been twisted and buckled back in an extraordinary manner by the blow transmitted by the 7th underframe. The front of the 6th carriage slammed into the rear of the 5th, and caused significant damage there as well. That loco of the Edinburgh train, Grand Parade, had ended up 96 yards beyond the point where the two trains had actually collided. It was derailed and embedded in the cutting side, parallel with the track and alongside the crumpled underframe of the sixth vehicle of the Dundee train. It had ended up leaning over at an angle of 60 degrees, but its tender remained in line and upright. A massive amount of energy had been absorbed by the destruction of the trailing half of the Dundee Express, but not enough to prevent any damage to the carriages of the Edinburgh. The sheer amount of energy imparted by a 450-ton train travelling at 60 mile an hour is phenomenal. As a result, the underframes and bodies of the first and second coaches literally overrode the tender and engine and assumed upright positions ahead of it. These coaches were followed by the third, which came to rest 12 feet in the air on top of and hiding the tender and the engine. That's one of the most seen images of this accident, in fact, it even features as the artwork for it. 
The bogies belonging to these three coaches were left behind in a pile behind the tender, and acted more or less as a ramp which helped each of those vehicles ride up and over the locomotive. It is a sad truth, given the forces involved and the construction of the vehicles, that there was a certain inevitability around the outcome of Castle Kerry. The line, no one could have remained alive in the 6th and 7th coaches of the Dundee train, could not be more accurate. Nowadays we talk about survival space in accidents. There was none in these vehicles. There was barely any vehicles, there was no space to survive within. Five passengers had been killed in the 5th vehicle of the Dundee service. The 6th and 7th vehicles saw 9 and 8 fatalities respectively. 22 total found on this train. Sadly they were joined by 13 passengers of the Edinburgh train, 6 from the first carriage and 7 from the second, both of which had been thrown up and over the engine. In the cold, snow-coated cutting outside a Scottish station, 35 lives had been lost a fortnight before Christmas. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. With the accident concluded, investigation could begin. Lieutenant Colonel A.H.L. Mount was responsible for reporting back to the Secretary of the Ministry of Transport. As we have done every episode, we'll have a look at the factors that the investigation needed to outline. Firstly, why had two trains ended up on the same piece of track at the same time? We've covered this before, it shouldn't happen. Secondly, as we look at every time, had any opportunities been missed to prevent the accident? And thirdly, were there any available solutions which would have changed the course of events had they been available here and now? And we're not talking future We're talking things that were available at the time. On the first point, yet again, we find ourselves discussing the basic principle of signalling. This is still, and only ever will be, one train in one section of track at any one time. As any main line at the time, the line through Castle Carry was set up with signalling to separate trains and allow them to travel through the area safely. At Castle Carry, this was the type known as Absolute Block, which we mentioned earlier on and at some length in the Irk Valley episode. 
One of the reasons this system was such a safe progression of all the systems used was the need for signallers to talk to each other. When each signaller wanted to allow a train through a section, he needed to ask the next box if the line was clear. This meant the chances of trains being in the same block together was very slim. The next step of protection of this system was the use of home and distance signals. Once a signaller had allowed a train into his section, he knew that if the next block wasn't available, he couldn't allow it to proceed, so they would leave their home signal at danger. This stop signal would let the train know to stop, and not proceed as the next block wasn't clear. But instead of a train just coming round a corner and seeing a sign to stop, there was also the distant signal, which would serve as an advance warning. When the distant was at caution, prepare to stop at the home. On this cold December afternoon, the system was working as it should. Signal boxes were using bell cords and telegraph devices to pass train after train between each other successfully and without incident. Even after the points failed at Garchow, the system still worked, with each box sending the message to the next, line clear, and receiving a negative response until all three boxes had a train sat in their section. Snedden knew that this was going on, and that the method of work was sound, which is why accepting the Dundee Express wasn't an issue. He knew that he couldn't send it forward yet, and wouldn't be able to till his colleague at East Ulliter informed him of such. But the signals in his section were set in such a way that Dundee would first see a caution, and then approach the box slowly, and be able to stop at the home signal set to danger. But we know that this didn't take place, so why not? In his evidence, driver Macaulay states that he saw the distant signal standing clear. He has no doubt about this whatsoever. Considering that this is 1937, we're not talking about colour light three aspect signalling. This is semaphore. The distant signal was a wooden board with a notch cut out. This board was rotated to display either a clear or cautionary aspect. Level is danger or caution and a 45 degree angle is clear. Now here at Castle Carry, these were lower quadrant signals, so the signal arm dropped into the 45 degree angle, wasn't raised into it. When Macaulay says he saw it standing clear, this is what he meant. With a clear distant, he was expecting to see a clear home signal 746 yards later, so he did nothing to slow his train. When the driver of the Edinburgh train, Mr Anderson, was questioned following the investigation, he stated that he believed the signal to be at around 37 degrees, or fairly well off. Off being the slang for a signal being uh, clear. Not a well-off signal, wealthy-wise. Anyway, I've definitely digressed. When the lever positions in the signal box were examined, they showed that the distance had been set to caution. As such, the signal itself should have reflected that. With the disparity between these two pieces of evidence being so problematic, it was crucial that they got to the bottom of it. The signals at Castle Carry were interlocked, a safety feature which meant that rods and slides prevented the signals from being set against each other. This meant that the distance couldn't be set to clear if the home wasn't clear also. With the home set to danger, it would have, theoretically, been impossible to pull off the distance. Other people looked at the signal out there beyond the viaduct and reported back on their findings. The first train to travel on the down since the accident, a light loco involved in recovery, came up in the signal and plainly saw it to be in the horizontal caution position. 
Visibility was very low at time due to the snow, but they could still see it to be at caution. The district inspector, who had arrived by sight by car from Glasgow, walked along to the signal and also found it to be set correctly, not in line with the accounts of both drivers. Signaller Sneddon also made comments about his ability to see the backlight and signal from his box when it was reset after the freight train had passed through, the one that had been detained at Delata. But his account on this matter was somewhat questionable. This was a signaller who apparently couldn't see the tail lamp of the train 300 yards away due to poor visibility, yet could see the signal 750 yards away. There was another factor which moved the Lieutenant Colonel towards a reduction in the stock he placed in Sneddon's testimony, but we'll come to that shortly. The last factor considered was the possibility that the signals were drooping, or otherwise faulty. As I mentioned earlier, these were lower quadrant signals, and that meant that a clear aspect was displayed by dropping the arm into the 45 degree position. There was a chance that uh, snow, ice, cable wear and tear could have made it so that the mechanically operated arm was displaying something other than horizontal. And when it was measured and examined, there was an element of this drooping, but to a maximum of around 16 degrees from the horizontal. That wouldn't generate a signal that was well off, as both drivers believed it to be. When all the evidence around the signal itself was considered, the Lieutenant Colonel came to the following conclusions. Sneddon's evidence that he was absolutely clear that he had seen the signal return to caution was somewhat questionable. As I mentioned before, he hadn't been able to see a tail light half the distance away, if he had indeed looked for it, which he was obliged to do. And the lamp in his box was lit, so the likelihood was fairly small that he'd seen it at that distance. The Lieutenant Colonel told of how the evidence of the drivers was of greater importance, and that both had excellent records. Macaulay on the Dundee was obviously alert, as he had seen Sneddon's light displayed from the box, and Anderson had also reacted quickly to the red lamp on the ground. The drivers estimated the angle of the board as being 31 to 37 degrees, so steep enough that they had both believed them to have been placed in this position and not drooped to it. There is the unusual feature in this case that the word of the signalman is contradicted by the two drivers, who in turn, and in good faith, accepted the signal as clear and not drooping. Neither Sneddon nor Scott even tried to view the backlight after the accident, and the presumption in favour of the drivers is stronger still when the gravest doubt exists as to whether the signal was within Sneddon's view at all. Although he couldn't make any decisive judgement on the matter, the investigator accepts that the distant could have stuck in its clear position following the goods train, affected by snow and ice, and that when the Dundee passed, it remained there, but the heavier Edinburgh and the increased vibration might have released the stuck signal and returned it to caution. While it's impossible to say for certain what happened at the signal that night, and there was a bit of back and forth in the report about the speed trains were travelling, etc., but in terms of the reason the accident took place, it's overshadowed by another factor. The crux of the matter is that the collision only occurred due to the fact the Edinburgh was accepted by Sneddon at all. By this time, Sneddon knew that the Dundee had already passed a signal at danger, blown past his box at 60 mile an hour, and he fully expected it to be in collision with the freight further down the line. I, for one, cannot understand why his next step at this point was to telephone the box proceeding and ask about bringing another train into the area 
and not to phone Dolita and inquire about the accident, or lack of an accident, or the condition of the Dundee train. Was the line clear? Was assistance needed? It's not what I would have done in that situation, and it's not what a lot of signalers would have done in that situation. Under these circumstances, he didn't know that he had a clear run of a quarter mile beyond his home signal. He didn't know where the Dundee train was, and in all honesty, if he'd looked out of the windows, he would more than likely have seen its tail lamp just beyond the end of the platform. As such, the answer to point one, and the single most influencing factor as to why these trains were in the same place at the same time, was that Signalman Snedden failed to operate traffic safely. The second question, were any opportunities to prevent the accident missed, is nice and simple to answer. Yes. Firstly, there were regulations that Snedden was supposed to follow in reduced visibility. And there was a real question as to whether or not he was supposed to have actually accepted the Dundee service without having received the line clear for the preceding freight train from Dulliter East. Add into the mix that if, as the investigator suspects, Snedden was unable to see his down-distant signal, then he should have informed the next box up the line that it may be defective, and that he should be approached at caution. He didn't do this. If he had, both trains would have been approaching slowly, easily stopped by hand and lamp signals. Detonators could have been deployed properly behind the Dundee if this action had been carried out just for the Edinburgh. But no, it hadn't taken place. Regulations could have prevented this accident, surely. Even as simply as the fact that he has a full conversation with regards to accepting the Edinburgh, asking, is it allowed, is it okay, is it within the regulations, and he still decided to take it, despite the fact he had no actual idea as to where exactly the Dundee train was. But, he should have known exactly where the Dundee train was because of the biggest missed opportunity, a really glaring error. We've talked previously about track circuiting and how it's been an important part of modern signalling systems for decades. Well, here at this remote location in the Scottish Lowlands, we could find exactly that. Sure, it wasn't the extensive system that we have now, but from the starting signal through to the home signal at Castle Carry on the down main, there was a section of track circuited track. This was reported back to the signal box via an instrument slap bang in the middle of the shelf above Snedden's levers. The location where the Dundee train stopped was within that section and it would have shorted the circuit and shown the track as occupied. So why didn't this prevent the accident? At the time when Snedden signalled Dullator to tell the box there about the Dundee running through his signal, he didn't look at the indicator. The bell signal for train running away on right line was a long one. Four bells, then five, and then five again. For the entire time he was sending that signal, the indicator was directly in front of him. It would have said, line occupied. Now, Sten did testify quite clearly that when he was speaking to Beattie at Greenhill about accepting the Edinburgh, he checked this indicator and that it was clear. However, when Scott and Fleming arrived at the box, it was observed that this indicator was showing correctly that the section was occupied. And after the accident, it was shown that the section was occupied. Shortly after they realised that this train was still in the area, when all three men were stood in the signal box, the train entering section bell cord was sent from Greenhill. 
The wrong side failure, or a dangerous fail, the opposite of fail-safe, needed investigating if it was true. The track circuit had been occupied, so should have shown as occupied the entire time on the indicator. The maintenance record of this particular signal was scrutinised, and it was found to be faultless. The failures hadn't occurred during the first 17 years of its life, nor once the track was repaired and relayed were there any issues found with the equipment after the accident. It would appear that, to all intents and purposes, it was functioning correctly, and without issue. Over the course of the inquiry, Snedden threw out allegations of this wrong side failure, and it was clear, it said clear. These developed into allegations against the maintenance of the circuit, even to the extent that he accused the person responsible of forging his signature on the logs. After all of this, there were some firm conclusions reached, which I'll paraphrase from the report. Altogether, Snedden's account was unconvincing, and his case against the track circuit and or its indicator was of the flimsiest nature, depending entirely upon his word. Added to that, the track circuit operated satisfactorily, satisfactorily, <laughs> without work or adjustment of any kind, when the permanent wear had been relayed and the necessary bonding had been completed. The indicator also functioned properly after this work had been carried out, and special examination and test disclosed no likely cause for the danger side failure. I attach so little value to Snedden's explanations of this matter that of all the contradictory features in this case, I have the least hesitation about forming the opinion that neither the track circuit nor its indicator failed as he alleged. Indeed, it seems very questionable whether he should be given the benefit of any doubt which may remain on the subject. The last factor that may have prevented the accident and snapped Snedden out of whatever was taking place in his head was as simple as a whistle. Her driver Macaulay on the Dundee sounded his at the point he saw Snedden's lamp or the point he came to a stand at the platform starting signal. It might have snapped him out of the misguided opinion that the train had barrelled on regardless. To whistle in this way when he came to a stand at the starting signal was a rule book requirement but one that hadn't been followed. The last factor to consider was whether or not there was additional technology available at the time which may have prevented the accident. We've talked previously about AWS, the automatic warning system, and TPWS, train protection and warning system. These are both developments on an idea of automatic train protection. I did a brief detail of the development of AWS in a bonus episode and discussed how the earliest examples were used on the Great Western Railway. This knowledge wasn't lost on Lieutenant Colonel Mount. In his recommendations, he mentions the GWR system alongside some others and advises that these systems have distinct advantages and that there is no dispute as to whether they improve safety. They may not have prevented the accident, considering the faults taking place within the human interface in the box, but an audible warning at the distant signal may well have prevented an ambiguous signal reading had the board been in the horizontal position. 
This audible warning system, as used on GWR, inclusive of a brake, was assessed by the Ministry of Transport, and it was shown that the the effect of the application of a simple warning control system could have, during the 10 years prior to September 1921, would have provided an effective prevention in 13% of accidents. Although 37%, and perhaps more in all, might have been affected by a more developed system of automatic train control in one form or another. This sort of real ATC, real automatic train control, is the sort of feature that we're starting to see creep in now in more recent and more modern times. While the main cause of the accident was certainly signal error, the report is a long, complex and detailed affair I would recommend a read with several cups of tea. It was recommended that the London and North Eastern Railway look into developing the signalling system from two aspect semaphore to something more befitting management of traffic at high speeds. And I suppose that's what we should discuss in terms of development since this time, which should prevent the same happening again. 304 aspect colour light signalling is a really good start. Nowadays, a red signal is normally preceded by a green and then a yellow. Green is clear, crack on, proceed at line speed. Yellow is cautionary, be prepared to stop at the next signal. Red is danger, do not pass. On a high speed line, four aspect signalling adds a double yellow to one that the next one is a single yellow. So green, double yellow, yellow, red. Four aspect signalling in particular gives you a three section warning of a need to stop. But the more crucial difference when compared to semaphore signals that we saw in 1937 is the way that aspects were displayed. No ambiguous angles. A stretched cable or the weight of snow could cause a signal arm to droop. A red light is always a red light. When you add into the mix that green and yellow are equally as distinctive from both each other and red, it's a much more clear way of displaying those messages. If the signal was displaying a wrong aspect at Castle Carry due to a failing of the mechanical system, colour light signalling would have removed the ambiguity. That yellow looks like a yellow regardless of what angle the light's at. Even a dim yellow is still a yellow. Not only that, most colour light sections are signalled so that every signal can display all the aspects, not just home showing danger and distance showing caution. Full track circuiting or modern train reporting systems may have also had more of an effect. We can say fairly confidently that Signalman Snedden didn't use the one track circuit available to him very well, but in a different situation where all the track was circuited and he had access to a computer screen showing exactly where a train was as it moved from one track circuit to the next, that might have given him enough of a situational awareness that he wouldn't have made the same mistakes. Look, even if there wasn't track circuiting, but an actual counter or some other piece of timing or train logging infrastructure, a greater awareness of the situation would have been obvious. A signaller could have monitored systems which would show him the passage of a train, update the tra- the timing data on these computer systems. It would have been uh, a better situation. And yet again, I find myself talking about the same two abbreviations. AWS and TPWS. 
While the report in Castle Carry um, clearly speaks to the potential benefits a full system of automatic train control would have brought, even these systems would have created a benefit. Adverse aspects that signal will trigger AWS as a train approaches. This audible and visual warning sounds in the cab, and it makes sure that the driver is alert and aware. Now, it would give a driver a reason to stop if they couldn't see the signal, and if something appeared wrong with the signal, they're obliged to stop. Add TPWS into a mix, and that would trigger an automatic brake application if a train approached a red signal too fast to stop in time. If it had train had barreled through at Castle Carry, it possibly wouldn't have brought it to a complete stand by the time it collided with the tail lamp of the Dundee Express, but it would certainly have slowed it down faster than occurred on the day. I know that these two keep coming up, and I feel like almost every episode I'm, I'm closing it down by talking about them, but TPWS and AWS really were massive improvements to the safety of the railway. It's, uh, it's clear that their existence earlier would certainly have saved more lives. The station at Castle Carry closed in 1967, and I'd love to tell you that that was the, the last newsworthy thing that happened on the railway in this sleepy village. However, in 1968, another rear-end collision occurred here. Again, it was the result of signal error, and it was coupled with some faults on the part of the drivers involved. Two people lost their lives. Like many other accidents, Castle Carry is remembered, with a memorial to those who passed away. Initially, this was a plaque in the village, but eventually, in 2007, the village decided to add a permanent memorial to their garden of remembrance. The memorial is comprised of two railway sleepers, two short lengths of track and a two-ton locomotive wheel. It also serves as a memorial for the further crash in 1968. The final twist to the tale of Castle Carry is one that occasionally is reflected at sites of other terrible accidents. Among the dead in 1937 was an eight-year-old girl. During the initial stages of the investigation, she was counted as missing. However, it soon transpired that she was a victim of the disaster. Curiously, over the following years, this story continued. Some of the locals swore that they had seen the ghost of the girl standing at the station. Whether you believe in ghosts or not, I could certainly imagine how a misty, snowy evening with snow deadening the sounds and lights, how that would make it very easy for a mind to meander back to a similar night many years before, and the horrors that took place there. Thanks for tuning into episode 9. We'll be back again on the 21st of December with 
possibly a Christmas-themed episode if I can find the right subject matter. Suggestions on social media, please. Once again, please like, share and review. Come interact with us on social media, Twitter or Facebook. Just search for Signals to Danger. Don't forget the Patreon if you're interested in supporting us. That's patreon.com Signals to Danger. And if you want to look into getting hold of some of our railway merch, go to the shop page at signalstodanger.com. Finally, big, big breath of air. As ever, the music from the Sepidos was excerpts from Light Goes Away by Douglas Maxwell, Deserted City, Warm of Mechanical Heart, Difference, Sunset and Brand New World by Kai Engel and Merkabar by Jesse Gallagher. Until next episode, travel safe. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.